If we can, we're going to open back up to Matthew chapter 23 this time. Last time we did make it through 22. It's always pleasantly surprising when we do make it through a chapter, right? So you never know how that one's going to go. <laughs> but as we saw in chapter 22, Jesus addressed a lot of people. He addressed Pharisees and scribes and elders and the leadership of the Jewish church. And he was addressing their religious hypocrisies. He was addressing their religious ignorance. Um, he was addressing the pitfalls and the places in their lives where their words didn't match up with their actions. And you would think, man, he really covered it fairly sufficiently in that chapter. Just to find out that in 23, he gets just a little bit more in depth. Okay. This is, again, as we were talking about, we have our timeline of when Jesus is approaching his crucifixion. This is all still going on on the same day. This was a very long day. Okay. He addressed a lot of people in this day. He, you know, laid bare their fallacies in front of everybody. Um, and in 23, he's going to kind of bring it to a close, um, which you would think with the Pharisees and the leaders that they'd be going, finally, finally, you're bringing it to a close. Finally, you're backing off. You're concluding what you're talking about. At the close of 22, we notice that he made a point to address who he was. When he said, he asked them the question, well, who is the Messiah? You say it's David's son. Well, you're right in that in one way. But why does then David, by inspiration of the scripture or inspiration of the spirit in the scriptures, write about him in the Psalms and say, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make all thy enemies thy footstool. He made a point to clarify that the Messiah is, yes, a descendant of David, which gives him the kingly authority over Israel. But most importantly, he has a heavenly, eternal authority that comes from God. God said to my Lord, sit on my right hand till I make all your enemies your footstool. So he makes a point to clarify that the Messiah is not just to be respected as a natural descendant of David, but is actually on the same level as the throne goes with God the Father, with Jehovah. So you, you get a equality of power that is present there, way beyond anything David ever possessed. Okay, And I think as we kind of talked about this very briefly when we were trying to rush on out of chapter 22 last time, we, we wanted to make the point that if you think about how the Old Testament law and prophet governance was set up, the high priest and the, the Levitical priests and all those who kind of ran the show as far as the sacrifices go, well, they plus the prophets... Plus the judges, they all had this kind of equality thing. There was no one that was really superseding anybody else. You know, David, even as king, was called out by a prophet. It wasn't like David said, all right, and have his head cut off, we're done. You know, I'm king, I make the rules. No, he's still subservient to the word of God. And the word of God in those days was the law and the prophets who communicated what God's message was. Well, so you got kind of an equality there. Well, these chief priests looking at David's descendant, okay, the Messiah that was to come, if you kind of took the God side out of it, well, you've got just another king, okay? But we are the chief priests. We are the elders. We are the lineage of Aaron. We are the ones called out to be the spiritual representative. So you may be the civil representative, sure. And you may be restoring a national Israel, but we still hold the keys to the quote-unquote kingdom of heaven in that sense. So Jesus, I feel like, and that could just be complete speculation on my part, but I feel like Jesus in that moment was trying to draw out the dual nature of, of the Christ, of the Messiah, both the God and the man, 
but also he was trying to draw out the dual authority. If he just had the authority of David, then he would just have the authority of an earthly king. And that authority does not supersede, override, or command the Levitical authority, the priestly authority, the law of Moses authority. Okay, it has to actually be subservient to that. And that's what we saw as we've been going through Deuteronomy. I, I hope that as we have been doing this, you've seen the parallels back and forth. Remember that in the Deuteronomy, the prescription was given. He says, when you get into the lands, when you get settled, you're going to ask me for a king. Okay, and when that happens, this is the kind of king you need to choose. And this is what your king needs to do. Your king needs to write, handwrite the law out. And keep it with him and read it every day so that he will be the kind of king that is glorifying to me and edifying to the nation. Well, that puts him under the law in that sense. Okay. So Christ is drawing out his dual nature to these Pharisees to say, guys, I am way beyond you. I'm way beyond your authority. I'm way beyond anything you can try to hurl at me. You've been throwing questions at me like somehow you think you're smarter than I am. And I'm here to tell you, I literally wrote the book. You can't beat me at this. I wrote it. I wrote it. I wrote the book about the universe. I wrote the laws and principles of molecular biology and all sorts of things that you don't even know about. I wrote things about quantum physics and dark matter and all this stuff you have no clue about. I've written books beyond books beyond books. You are not going to stump me on the law. Let's just be honest. My authority is way beyond yours. In fact, my ways are so unfathomable. You can't even scratch the surface. You're arguing with me about these particulars of the law. And I'm telling you, guys, I could literally blow your mind. Literally and... Yeah. (laughs) Literally and physically. Yeah. I could literally blow your mind. In fact, the only reason why you are in existence, the only reason why you can show me this cheek and this attitude and, and, and give me this kind of debate is because I am literally holding the molecules together in your body so that you're even able to. So then, after he kind of blows them out of the water with that, he then proceeds to address the multitude that were there and to his disciples. Now, again, you had this kind of audience situation, okay, As we saw with the first day when he came in for his triumphal entry, you saw him come in. There was a multitude that followed him shouting Hosanna, praising him. We read about how in Mark and in Luke that as they were coming in, the Pharisees were just all up in arms about that, saying they need to tell him to be quiet. And that's when Jesus says, these stones would start screaming my name if if I told these to be quiet. So there's no way getting out of this. I am who I am, and there's no way to be stopped. Then he enters into the temple, lays it on them again. The children in the temple start screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us, Messiah. Pharisees get mad about that. Tell them to be quiet. Get those kids to be quiet. How dare they speak such things? He says, look, what are they doing? God made them for this. The Father made them for this. They're just doing what the Father made them to do. Can't argue with that. So you got the multitudes there. Here he's come back in the next day and he's been talking and it's been kind of pointed at the elders, at the chief priests, at the scribes, at the lawyers, at all these religious elites, the religious intelligentsia who ran the show as far as the religious side of things went. But now he kind of, they're still there. They're still present in the, in the audience. They're still seething and writhing and foaming at the mouth about Jesus. Remember, just a few verses back, they started plotting about how they're going to kill him. Okay? So Jesus then starts to address the multitude. Now he's taking the focus off of talking to these people one-on-one. And he says, okay, I'm just going to let everybody here know exactly who you are. 
in that process, he's going to draw out about six different condemnations against these religious leaders. He's going to draw them out and show them and expose them to the multitudes that are standing there listening. So you've got the Pharisees and the leaders all kind of here, but you got all these other people that are there. Remember if we've recently, I can't remember if we have recently, but you know, we've looked at in the past the picture of this temple, okay? And we've looked at how huge it was. Right? It was like four or five times bigger than the original tem- temple. It was bigger than the second temple. It's Herod's temple that's been expanded out. It's got this huge porch around it. I mean, this was a large Roman-esque, you know, Colosseum kind of thing, okay? And it housed a lot of people, a lot of Jews and even Gentiles, okay? This was a very large place. So the multitudes that he's addressing here, yeah, are still the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of them, but there's a whole big crowd that has gathered around now. As it would. I mean, you, you have anybody who's ever having some kind of intense discussion. You're just the slightest bit intrigued, right? So you've got these groups of people who you respect, who have proclaimed themselves as being the leaders. And here they are one-on-one with Jesus. And you've been hearing about Jesus and knowing what Jesus has said and done and going, okay, well, I wonder how they're going to, you know, wonder, wonder how this is going to go down, okay? So let's listen in. So you got this huge crowd standing around Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're all going back and forth. And then Jesus finally gets to the point where he has completely locked them up. He says, all right, now I'm going to lay bare the realities of these people before I leave. Okay, You're going to know exactly what these people are doing and their motives behind it. And the reason is because I want you to know what true, faithful, God-centered life looks like and religion associated with that versus this false, fake thing that these people have been doing for generations. Okay, And this is not the first time this has ever happened. I mean, we have... Numerous prophets from the Old Testament that did this over and over and over and over again. In fact, all the quote-unquote minor prophets that a lot of us just kind of, you know, blow past a lot of times. That's all, that's, that's what they were preoccupied with. Was addressing this issue. And it's one that we talked about a few weeks back about living it versus looking like it. Remember, this is all the same day. The day started with cursing a fig tree because it looked like it was something that it wasn't. Okay, We are now concluding this day, and at the conclusion of the day, he is going to tell everybody that's listening, his disciples in particular, because <laughs> he really wants them to get this, but the multitudes in general. He is trying in this moment to systematically destroy the false image that the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the religious leaders had propped up. Okay? So that's why, that's the context for this. And that's why sometimes when you read it, you're like, man, Jesus ain't throwing no punches. He ain't holding back. He is gloves off, bare knuckle. He's laying it out. And that's why. This is, again, kind of like we have seen in, in... in chapters before there are times where he gets really real with his disciples and he really lays it bare for them and you'd say well man that seems so harsh he is days away from being gone he's days away days away before his exit from this world he wants them sure and founded and moving in the right direction And the best way you can do that is to hold up the contrasting image, okay? Best way you can do that is you're still, he's still teaching his stuff over and over, but the best thing you can do is go up, okay, what you have seen here, this is wrong. What you see here, this is fake. What you see here, this is phony, okay? This is why things like, you know, we we talk about things like church history, Right, And I always laugh because if you go back and you study church history, you'll find that like 90% of the arguments that we have today that we think are novel and new and some 
you know, out-of-the-world thing that's come about. It's not, as we've said before. There's nothing new under the sun. The same arguments have been fought. 1400s, 1300s, 1200s. They're fought in Acts chapter 15. We're going to find that in just a minute. All these things have already been discussed. We hadn't had any new ideas, all right? Especially since Facebook came on. No new ideas, all right? You're just reposting stuff other people post, much to everybody's detriment. But here you have him holding up the contrary fake view so that you can more clearly see what true Christ-centered fellowship, worship, everything is, okay? And so that's like with church history. Sometimes it is really good for us to go back and go, man, look at what those people did. Look at how far off base they got, okay? You know why that's a really good thing? Because then you can lay it up against us and go, look what we're doing. Look how far off base we may have gotten and comparing it back to the Word of God. So in all these situations, it is good for us to look outside of ourselves in many cases. So we can go, okay, are we truly doing what Christ commanded us to do? Or are we just kind of rolling with this crowd? Because remember, these Pharisees and Sadducees, man, they had a following. They had a whole system. It's not like they're out there like a snake oil salesman, okay? They've got a group. They have people that are under them. They have people that have been following them that for years and years and years and years had said, man, these guys know what they're talking about. And Jesus is about to hold them up and go, no, they really don't. So it's always important for us to get outside of ourselves and make sure that we're not as it's been called, we're not just in a sounding chamber hearing our own voices okay and that's what jesus is about to do here with them and he's doing it to the multitudes and to the disciples notice he's kind of turned his attention away from just one-on-one with the pharisees so starting in chapter 23 and we do have a lot to read so open up your bibles read along with me chapter 23 starting in verse 1 he says then spake jesus to the multitude and to his disciples saying the scribes and the pharisees sit in moses's seat which is a good way of saying they are technically in inhabiting the space of teachers of the law all right and because of that all therefore they bid you observe that you observe and do Okay, so while they are teaching from Moses and while they are occupying that space of authority as teachers of Moses' law, you should observe what the law teaches. He's not arguing that. He's saying they're teaching from a good source. The source is good. The law is good. God made the law. It's a good thing, right? Here's where the problem is. But do not you after their works, for they say and do not. They teach from Moses, but they don't do Moses. They teach from the law, but they don't do the law. And he's going to address that a little bit further because you'd say, well, wait a second. These Pharisees were like, they were strict about the law. In fact, Paul himself would say, I was perfect in keeping the law. Okay, so they did the law really well. In fact, that was their whole claim to fame is we do the law right. We do the law better than anybody else. But they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their finger. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries, which were basically little pieces of, you know, scripture, you could call it that, scripture that they would write and they would wrap them around their arms, they'd put them on their head. You know, they'd take Deuteronomy and they would take it to a very literal degree, okay? They'd be wrapping it on their arms, they'd be putting it in their hands, they'd be strapping it to their forehead, they'd put it on their doors as they walk in and out. I mean, all these things that Deuteronomy talked about, man, they were literal, all right? They were taking it. To the literal degree, but they make them wide. Theirs are much bigger. You may have it. it used to be it's just a small little scroll written out with a small little passage. You know, like Jesus wept. That's all you had on there. You know, that was always the famous verse to memorize. You know, how many verse? You know, I memorized Jesus wept. There you go. I memorized the verse of the Bible. Okay, so here though, these are wide phylacteries. Okay, 
They got a lot of scripture on them. They've written a big thing. They didn't just go for the small. They make it big. If they're going to do a phylactery, man, they're going to do a phylactery. And everybody's going to use phylactery in your common vernacular for the rest of this week, okay? And enlarge the borders of their garments. So again, we talked about this from Deuteronomy. The commandment for fringes and borders on your garment. You had a certain classification that was to go on the outer garment. And what it was, it's a, it's a status symbol. It was for people who were not Jewish to be able to look and go, man, look at all these crazy Jewish people with these fringes hanging off their garments. You can see them from a mile away. Okay, It was an identity thing. Well, again, if we're going to do it, we're going to go big. All right, so we don't just have the normal standard-sized garment borders or standard-sized tassels. No, we're going to have big tassels, big borders. You're going to be able to see me from a mile away and go, oh, now that guy, that's one holy dude. Look at how big his tassels are. Look at how wide his borders are. He's really into this Deuteronomy thing. I mean, we may be getting by with just a small little thing. And you know, he, look at that. That man's got to be holy. They love the uppermost rooms at feasts, which basically is really the uppermost seats, the uppermost chamber, the uppermost place, the place of reverence, the highest honor, head of the table, and the chief seats in the synagogues. When these guys come in and sit down in church, they sit down in the best seats of church where everyone can see them, everyone knows who they are. Those, those are the people who sit in that section they love greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be not you called Rabbi. For one is your master, even Christ, and all of you are brethren. And call no man your father on the earth. For one is your father, which is in heaven. Neither be you called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. I think we've heard that once or twice before. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you don't go in yourselves, neither do you suffer any of them that are entering in to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, make long prayer. Therefore, you shall receive the greater damnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass sea and land, or you travel around sea and land, to make one proselyte, or one disciple, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves." Woe to you, you blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold? And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is on the altar, he is guilty. You fools and blind, for whether is greater the gift... Or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it, and by all things thereon. And whosoever shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it, and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven, sweareth by the throne of God, and by him that sitteth thereon. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithes of mint, and anise, and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law. Judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done, and not to leave the other undone. You blind guides which strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, clean first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchres, or basically whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones, and of all uncleanness. 
Even so you also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, you be witnesses to yourselves that you are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill you up then the measure of your fathers. And that's almost a prophecy about what's about to happen. You serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Berechias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent to thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens unto her wings, and you would not." Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I shall say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth till you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now I can just go ahead and tell you, we're not going to make it all the way to the end. <laughs> so you could strap strap in for that. Um, we talked about, though, that there are six, as I have kind of laid out here, there are six primary condemnations that are made. Okay, and kind of in my own phraseology with this, number one is fame versus faith. Number two is destruction versus discipleship. Number three is money versus majesty. Number four is religion versus relationship. Number five is appearance versus actuality. And number six is illusion versus reality. Again, that can probably be divvied up in a little bit different way. That's just kind of how I grouped them. Even after I grouped them that way, I looked at one and was like, hmm, that actually we could probably stick that in the one above. But that's just kind of the framework to outline the areas here that Christ is calling out for where they're off. Okay? Exposing their true heart and their natures and why they do what they do. Okay? So in the first, if we're looking at fame versus faith, you have in chapter 23, you have from verses 1 to 12, he will start off saying, you sit in the seat of Moses, you teach from Moses' law, you are good to teach that, and the people are good to follow Moses' law. But here's the problem, Pharisees, you don't follow Moses' law. You do things in your life that doesn't match up with what Moses commanded. And you said, but wait a second, we've talked about how perfect they were in keeping the law. But here's the reality. They were perfect in keeping things of the law, all right? But there was a lot of stuff that they were perfect in getting around keeping things of the law. They did a really good job of that. Remember, Jesus has already addressed some of that. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I never said that. That's not in Moses' law, okay? You slid that little bad boy in there so you could get around it, all right? You've heard it said about you should honor your father and mother, but then what do you do with it? You then say, oh, yeah, but I'm going to give this to the temple as a gift. And so how, can you really argue with me, mom and dad, for not giving you the money because I'm giving it to the temple? Isn't that more holy, righteous? Doesn't that count for more? So I'm still doing it, but I'm not really doing it. It's really convenient how you can take doing the things God commands you and somehow slide around it to continue to say I'm doing what God commanded me to do. You are teaching it, but you are not doing it. Now, again, that is not as black and white as we like to think it is, okay? This isn't black and white, and, well, you know, in one degree it is. This isn't black and white in the sense that they would say, okay, I'm teaching thou shalt not steal, but I'm actually stealing everything, okay? I've been loading up my purse with all the gold from the temple. I've been running around to my neighbor's house and stealing all that stuff. I've been committing adultery with my neighbor's wife. I've been, it's not that black and white, these guys are not that black and white in most cases. 
These guys are reordering the things that God commanded in Moses' law to continue to show themselves as righteous and holy while they really avoid doing what God actually commanded them to do. So these aren't like blasphemous pagan people. These are religious people. These are people who are still doing sacrifices. In fact, they're doing them very, very properly. I mean, these jokers are tithing in mint and cumin. Like some of the smallest things, the minutest points of the law. Man, they're even keeping those. But what we'll see is it's all a show. It's all to avoid the true heartfelt faith-based keeping of what God had commanded you to do. Okay? Have you ever been in a situation and you know you think about this with like I guess whether you, you think about it like in in lawyer communication, okay? Have you ever heard like certain things like maybe on the TV about things or whatever that you're you're kind of watching a courtroom scene and you see how maybe a lawyer is trying to kind of get around what's being said, but by not blatantly doing it, but he's, he's doing, as they would say, lawyer ease. They're giving you a lot of language and stuff to kind of bypass the fact that really down true, you're not doing what is said to do here, okay? But you've given me a lot of stuff to fill that space in with. You have tried really hard to avoid actually doing what you're commanded to do, but to still look like you're doing it, okay? We do this in our own lives all the time. We don't want to admit it, but we do, okay? We do these things, right? We try hard to see how far we can push that line without actually stepping over it. How far we can brush up against it without actually going over it. How far we can kind of bend it just a little bit to the left to allow in some things that wouldn't really be, by the original understanding of it, allowed in. But we've kind of, we've just slid it to that edge so that we can get by with it. That's what he is first addressing here with this idea of fame versus faith. What does he lay out here? All this outward show stuff. All these outward show things. How good are you at keeping the law? I am so good that I go above and beyond what the law commands me. All right? That's how righteous I am. If they say put four tassels, I'm going to put 40. Okay? If they say make the hem of your garment an inch, I'm going four inches. You want to know why? Because, man, I'm on fire for this law stuff. I'm on fire for God. I'm going to go above and beyond and do more than he asks me to do just to show how great I am. In doing these things. And so he calls them out. He says, here's the problem though. Yeah, you're doing all this stuff. You're keeping all these things of the law. You're teaching all these things from the law. But then your lives are not actually living out what the true meaning of the law commanded you to do. And we saw him kind of address some of that. You're like over here devouring widows' houses. You're defrauding, okay, widows. You're stealing their homes from them. Well, that's like 100% contrary to what God ever commanded. In fact, as we have been looking at in Deuteronomy, how many times have we seen already where God said, you are required to take care of the widows, the fatherless, the needy, and the refugee? He didn't say it was optional. He didn't say it was good for you as a Jew to do that. He said, no, you are my people, and this is what I'm telling you to do. You better honor them, take care of them, provide for them, and, uh, provide for them, and not obscure the justice due for them. Okay? Because if you do, I'm going to hold you accountable for it. Fast forward to all the minor prophets, and that's what's brought up every single time. You failed to keep justice for the poor, the needy, the fatherless, and the widows. Over and over and over and over again. So here you have these Pharisees who in one sense are really keeping the law, going above and beyond, big and bold. They are keepers of the law. On the other side, they're ripping off widows. We're teaching one thing and we're living something completely different. 
And I'm sure if you really asked them about it, they would have a really good reason why they were doing that. And somehow they would probably tie it back to something in the law. Okay? Just like they did with the fathers and mothers thing. Honor your father and mother. They tied it right back. Oh, no, because we're doing this. We're giving to the temple and we're doing, you know, all this stuff. We're making this work. But in reality, you're not. You're not doing the clear, express things that God taught you to do. So he calls them out for it. He says, you can listen to their teaching. Their teaching's good. What they are teaching is the law, and I wrote the law. And I know it's good. What you need to avoid is what they're doing. Because what they're doing is taking the law and using it for their own self-righteous, self-infatuated you know, purposes. They're taking it to make you think they are really holy and righteous people so that you will honor them, so that you will call them rabbi and call them out in the areas where you meet them and talk about how great they are. Okay, And then they're taking those same things and they're using them so they can get the, the head of the table, sit up on the front row. I mean, they're doing all that. That is what they are using this for, for fame. I intended it to be something that is used with faith. This is what he addresses in Romans when he says, they have by the law failed to obtain the righteousness that is in the law because they sought it not by faith. They sought self-righteousness and using the law to make them look how righteous they are, right? Whereas my desire is that the law was supposed to be used with faith. And when those two are together, you will find a righteousness. It's a righteousness that is of God, that is in us, that is through faith. It all circles back around. You know, sometimes, again, we've said, and this is a sidebar, we've talked about the law, and sometimes the law gets kind of beat up and set to the side as some kind of big failure thing. No, it's God wrote it. It's great. In fact, that's why David says, I delight in it. He wrote psalms about it, things that were sung in the temple, how he delights in the law of the Lord because it is right, it is good, it is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Well, those are all good things. And when they're coupled with faith, they change lives. These guys used it as a means to an end. To make themselves feel self-righteous, but then also to really get some good fame out of that. I'm going to go above and beyond so you can pull me out of a crowd and see that's the guy that's got the 10-inch borders on his garments and he's got a 100 tassels. Look at how awesome he is at this whole Jewish thing. So it doesn't, it doesn't translate into how their actions are, though. And that's what, ultimately, I think that's what gets to the heart of everything we've been talking about for two years. It's the translation into the actions of our lives that makes a difference, okay? You can talk about it all day, how great the gospel is. You can talk about it, as I've said before, you can talk about grace, 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 grace all day. If your life is not more gracious, I don't believe you. Either the message you're preaching is bogus, or there's some disconnect between what's coming out of your mouth and what's in your heart. So there has to be not only the teaching, but there has to be the doing. It has to have some kind of effect on you. It has to do something about your life. Otherwise, what's it good for? I don't care that you've read the Bible in a year. Good for you. Okay? That's great. I'm glad that you can read it from cover to cover. Awesome. In fact, as we've gone through Numbers and Leviticus and Exodus, I think we'd all agree. As we've been studying those things, there's been things that have just been like, Man, I've never caught this before. This is amazing. I can't believe, you know, I can't believe Leviticus could be so good. You know, I mean, it's well, in numbers, I mean, seriously, when we went into the numbers, I was sweating bullets going, like, I don't know how long this is going to last. This may be one of those, like, 1 to 28 synopsis, okay? They traveled in the wilderness. They killed some people. They landed in Jordan. Boom. Let's go into Deuteronomy where we can get some stuff we can actually use, okay? And then we dove into numbers. I'm like, no, man, this is some good stuff. It's almost like it was written by a really good writer, Okay. But this is what you see with that. You can read the Bible from cover to cover. Do it a thousand times. That's great. What impact has it made in your life? 
Have a million verses memorized. Awesome for you. I, can't, I have a hard time remembering my kids' names. And I implant the dogs in there sometimes. Okay? So, I mean, I'll shout at Jane and be like, Samuel, Ace a lady. When, and that's when you know you've gotten to a bad part. Okay? <laughs> Some people have wonderful photographic memories and they just snapshot little pictures in their brain. They can recite and stuff. That's fantastic. Recite to me the whole discourse of Romans. Fantastic. What difference has it made in your life? If all you do is hold it up, and say, oh, look, I got all of look, I got all of Romans figured out. I have gotten that thing down to a T. Great. What have you learned from it? What has it done to you? Because that's all that matters. You have all the intellectual knowledge about it all you want to. Have it all precise. Have all the arguments fleshed out. If your life is not changed by the gospel, then it is meaningless. When you fast forward with the Pharisees, because you would think that after 23, that the Pharisees would just be done. I mean, Jesus just eviscerates them. And you think, man, they're out of here. There's no way that they can hang out after this. Their credibility is shot. Their morale has to be in the tanks. Okay, They get a little bit of a morale boost because they kill him here in a little bit, and they feel pretty good about that. All right, But other than that... You think they're done. Well, we kind of know a little bit that they're not done because Jesus says, hey, by the way, I'm going to continue to send you prophets and things. You're going to kill them too. So you can stand over here all day and say that, oh, if we were back in our daddy's day, we wouldn't have killed the prophets. I'm about to give you a second chance. Let's see how you deal with it. And I'm already going to tell you how you deal with it. Same way he told the Israelites in Deuteronomy. I'm already going to tell you how this is going to go. You shouldn't marry people that are of this group because you're going to be drawn away to idolatry, but you're going to do it anyway. And this is what's going to happen when you do it. Guess what? Like a TV guide. Got to see the programming over the next several generations. Same thing with here. He says, I'm already going to tell you, you're over here praising yourselves that somehow you would not have been involved with that. And I'm about to tell you, I'm going to give you a second chance, so to speak. I'm going to send you more prophets and I'm going to watch you kill them, stone them, beat them, round them up, i.e. Paul, and destroy them. You can say all day that you're not a killer of the prophets, but you're about to be just like your fathers. But when you fast forward to Acts chapter 15, there's an interesting scenario within the New Testament church. So in the New Testament church, when you get to chapter 15 of Acts, now, obviously, we don't have time to go through it all, and obviously, we're not going to get past fame and faith, but... You, you look here at the New Testament church in Acts chapter 15. You've got Paul, you've got Peter, you've got all these guys running around doing all this stuff. We have the cases where Peter has come up to Gentiles, okay, Cornelius and others, and he has seen the visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit falling on them, showing to Peter that, hey, guess what? The Jews ain't all that's involved in this church, okay? I know that I have said ain't a lot of times here, okay? But the Jews are not the only ones involved with this. I've got people all over the place, including the Gentiles, who I know it's probably hard for you to understand or comprehend that I could have dirty Gentiles in my church. But, man, I'm just telling you, I've got some dirty Gentiles in my church. Boom. Holy Spirit. There you go. You can see it now. You can't argue with me about it. And for Peter, that was a pretty big deal. Peter, of all of them, that was a pretty big deal. We know he had this kind of struggle between do I like the Gentiles or not, okay? Do I like the Gentiles around my Jewish buddies or not? You know, Paul had to call him out for that, okay? So here, though, you've had all of them see the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the Gentiles. Well, now we have a problem because we've got to go back to the church at Jerusalem, and we've got to convince those brothers that actually ministering to the Gentiles and accepting the Gentiles into what has been a Judo-centric, okay, kind of situation here. We gotta, we're going to be we're going to be accepting in some people. Yeah, Judeo, Judeo-centric, okay? You've got to be accepting in some people here, okay? People that formerly you would not have come anywhere close to. So now in chapter 15, starting in verse 4, he says, And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. Now this is where you catch the interesting part. 
But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying, that it is needful to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by the mouth by my mouth, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knows the hearts of which knows the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as He did to us, and put no difference, <clears throat> and put no difference between us. Well, hold on, hold on. Knows the heart and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you tempt God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Then all the multitude kept silence. Probably a good thing. And gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought amongst the Gentiles by them. So now you got it in the mouth of three witnesses. Okay? And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things." Known to God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Therefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Now, why did I read that whole big part? Okay, Why did we look at that? Well, number one... It's important because this is the church, okay? We're looking at Pharisees, you could kind of consider, I'm going to say it like this, and you know I don't mean in any kind of hard, fast timeline, pre-church, okay? Obviously, the church is with Christ, okay? So we know it's there. But when we're looking at Christ addressing these Pharisees, you don't have this kind of Acts 2 established thing that's setting sail yet, okay? It's building, it's growing, it's established. Acts chapter 2, we see what would be the the first generation of church fathers there, okay? Now, in those church fathers, you still got Pharisees. Pharisees that believe, but they're still calling themselves Pharisees, okay? So Christ didn't completely destroy them that day. They're still around. Actually, some believers in the church here. Now, what is interesting, and I have always marveled over this, Okay, we're going to get back to actually what we're kind of making the conclusion of. But what I've always marveled about this section of Scripture, you have an immense amount of diversity in place at the inception of the church, and it doesn't change. you got a group over here that's still, they're still calling themselves Pharisees. It's not like they lost the name. They didn't drop it and go, nope, we're all the church now. It's all the church. We're all just church. We're not called by any other thing except church. Except here he says, no, you got a group that were still calling themselves Pharisees, but they were believers, but they still called themselves Pharisees. Well, what did that mean? Well, they were very still in love with keeping the law. Okay? And they didn't think it was something that should be so easily discarded, that God had set this up and it had been the rule of life for thousands of years. And they didn't think, well, just because the church comes along, I mean, God wrote that, God did this, why do they not agree so they didn't just completely throw the law out. They looked at it as something that still was necessary. I can go ahead and kind of elaborate without, the, without the, it being expressly given. I can guarantee you that the majority, if not all, of the Jewish inhabitants of the church at Jerusalem continued to practice circumcision. Okay, They didn't just throw that up in the air and go, law's done, don't need it anymore. We got this Christ church thing and we're out of here. 
They would have, they would have circumcised their kids. All of them were still practicing circumcision. You know who wasn't practicing circumcision? The Gentiles in the church. You want to know why? Because they weren't Jewish. So, but from the inception, you did not have this kind of homogenous, everybody is the same thing that we envision. Not only did you have racial diversity, you had cultural diversity. There were Gentiles and Jews in the church who culturally circumcised and did not circumcise. There were going to be one group that held fast to the law so fast that you have Pharisees here who are going to really hold fast to that law still. We know Paul still observed Pentecost and other feast days. You still had that. You know who probably wasn't observing Pentecost? The church at Corinth. The church at Rome. They're more Gentile. Gentile, not genteel. Okay. So there was, an, at the inception, there was diversity. Even in the church of Jerusalem, there was diversity. There were different groups of people who kind of held different things to one degree or another. There's some of those like Paul who would come out and Peter who would have come out of this church in particular who he's like, hey, I'm, I'm okay with the Gentiles not being circumcised. They don't need to be circumcised. They got the Holy Spirit. Why wouldn't you? Why would you circumcise then? But then you also had a group of Pharisees in here. They were saying, no, I still think it's very important. From one church to another, you would have had a difference in their makeup. You say, well, why is that? Because one church in just the slightest, just surface level stuff. The church at Jerusalem, you know what their population was going to be made up of? 90% Jews. Okay? With all their history, all of their culture, all their everything. Okay? You know what is going to be made up at the church at Rome? A much less population of Jews. Okay? There was, there was some in there. You know, they weren't completely a Gentile church. You're just going to have a lot less. There's always been that diversity. There's always been that cultural difference. There's always been that difference of opinion within the church. Notice how within this church at Jerusalem, the sentinel church, the fountainhead from which all the other churches came. Notice how at the church at Jerusalem, there were differences in opinion. Peter was a part of this church. Peter didn't think they needed to be circumcised. The Pharisees in this church, they thought they needed to be circumcised. And and based off of what is communicated here, it was not the case that Peter walked in, gave his argument, and the entire church said, oh, that makes sense. I don't believe that anymore. The Pharisees in this church still thought circumcision was important. Yeah, the Jews in this church still thought circumcision was important. They still thought the law of Moses was important because when they wrap it up, they say... At least tell them to keep these aspects of the law because that's going to be better for them. And it just kind of helps because everywhere they go, they're going to bump into synagogues. And Moses' law is going to be preached. And at least if they're keeping these, it will be a little more kosher. And I use that word literally. There was still difference of opinion. They didn't come to some kind of grand conclusion that they were all on the same page now. And they all agreed that that circumcision was out the window. And they quit circumcising their kids and they just moved on. That wasn't the case. There is always a diversity of people. There is always a diversity of gifts. There is always going to be a diversity of opinions and thoughts. It's just going to be there. You know what's not in here, though? The diversity of thoughts caused the church of Jerusalem at that time to split into five different churches. The Pharisaical church, the mainline church, the liberal Gentile church, I guess you could call them the progressive Gentile church. Didn't happen, did it? It was almost like it was okay for people to have a difference of opinion within the church. So it was not, the issue was not resolved with acceptance and agreement. It was resolved with acquiescence and unity. That was the thing that ultimately they came to the conclusion of. Is that the unity of us as a church... And the unity of future churches can hinge on the fact of whether you can get over your personal opinions or thoughts or or ideas on the matter and realize that there is a greater, bigger picture thing going on here. Okay, And the reason why I bring this up, why do we get what do we gather from this? 
Okay? As we fast forward a couple of thousand years and we are the church in 20, you know, 19, that we should still expect and hope and pray for an immense amount of diversity. Okay? And the beautiful thing is that they can all occupy the same space. You can have that same difference of opinion. You can have that same difference of idea. You can have, as we looked at before, as you just for a second, do you think the church at Corinth in its practice and Sunday morning service looked the same as the church at Jerusalem? Absolutely not. That's why Paul had to write a letter to the church of Corinth to go, hey guys, so like when all y'all are like praying and prophesying and the women are praying and prophesying and the men are are, uh, shouting out and healings and all this stuff, when all that's going on with you, let's get some order to all this and make sure we're keeping it functional. You know why that letter was not written to the church of Jerusalem? It's more than likely it wasn't happening. He specifically says to Corinth that you were blessed with no lack of gifts. Indicating the church at Corinth was just interesting and different. Notice also that in their diversity, how they looked completely night and day from the church at Jerusalem. Their practice was different. What was going on on a Sunday morning was different. You know what he still called them? The church at Corinth. Somehow the church at Corinth could still occupy the same space as the church at Jerusalem and still be called a church. He didn't say all of a sudden you got to get out of here because here you go. You got women praying and prophesying. You got men over here shouting in tongues. We've got some problems here. Doesn't look like the church at Jerusalem. You got to get out. We're going to be the church at Jerusalem. And if you don't look like us. So there's a there's always been a diversity. There has never been this cookie cutter thing where one church looked exactly the same as the other church, looked exactly the same as the other church, looked exactly the same as the other church. You want to know why? Because the churches occupy different places and are inhabited by different people. And God didn't say, I've called you out of Africa to look like all of us Western white churches. And he didn't say, I call you out of Corinth to look like this Jewish church. I don't expect you to go in and grow a beard now and wear tassels and fringes. I don't expect you to do all that. You want to know why? Because you aren't Jewish. So you don't have to do that. Be who I made you to be. I called you to a place. I gave you gifts and I enabled you to use those gifts in the way that I have called you to use them. So what the Pharisees did in Jesus' day, is use the religion to promote an identity that really they weren't living out, okay? We have to be careful because we too can do the exact same thing. We can take the fact that we look a certain way, act a certain way, use the right language, and whatever, to hide the fact that really we're not doing what Christ commanded us to do. Say, oh, but look at the things that we do do. Look at how our church is set up. Look at the Bible I've got. Look at the words I use. Look at how I go to church on Sunday and Wednesday night. Look at how I don't go to Wednesday night. Whatever, you know, whatever the claim to fame is that makes you orthodox and legit and a good, righteous person, awesome. What is your life doing? Go to that church all you want to. Read that Bible cover to cover. The right Bible with the right letters and the right words and whatever it may be. Read all that, do all that, and and. And just live that up. Have that as your claim to fame. Walk around with those tassels. Show everybody that you're in the right place, right time, right everything. But is your life any different? Because if it's not, it's not worth anything. Your life has to be invested in the gospel. Your life has to be changed by the gospel. Your life and walk have to be exhibiting what Christ commanded us to do in the gospel. That's what the church at Jerusalem was trying to do. That's what the Gentiles in Corinth were trying to do. Even though they looked different in how it kind of came out in some cases. They still came back to living and teaching and doing what Jesus Christ commanded them to do. Faith versus fame. Faith Versus being able to walk around and go, yeah, but look at me and look at what church I go to and look at how I read my Bible and look at the devotional I've gone through and look at this and look at this and look at this and look at this is night and day different from 
This is what Christ has commanded me to do. This is how it has affected my life. This is what I'm setting my goal as. Yes, I'm going to try to read the book cover to cover, but the reason I'm reading it is because I want to dig and know more about what Christ has done for me. The reason why I'm out here doing these things in the community is not because I want people to go, oh, look at what a great church member they are. No, it's because God said, do good works to glorify me. So that's what I'm doing. Is my life any different? Am I living out what Christ has commanded me to teach and do? Am I just teaching it? Am I just talking about it? Or am I actually doing it? Am I just in it for the fame, for the status, for the ability to say I am something? Or am I doing it because by the faith he has given me, I'm drawn into relationship with him? So may God bless us to work on this.